from my home studio. Welcome to Evolve, groundbreaking Jewish conversations. Currently, the best way to get mental health is to get arrested. The largest mental health facilities are prisons. That's insane. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and our guest today is Rabbi Aryeh Cohen. We'll be discussing his essay, What Happens When Everything is Broken, Grappling with Defund the Police. The essay argues that the entire American model of policing is broken and that a new one is needed. Rabbi Cohen seeks to add historical context and a new perspective on the conversation on policing, racism, and violence by bringing in the Talmud and other Jewish sources. As a reminder, the essays discussed in this show are available to read for free on the Evolve website, which is evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. The essays aren't required reading for the show, but we always recommend checking them out. A little note that we spoke with Rabbi Cohen on Friday, November 6th, right after election day, when the outcome was still somewhat in doubt. And and now now we know that uh, Vice President Biden has been declared the winner, and it seems like democracy is going to hold. The elections have, have, have gone off. Um, we, we saw great celebrations here in, in Philadelphia. We know, we know not the entire country is celebrating, but um, that it's certainly the results of the election and, and the political situation is certainly very pertinent to the, what we're discussing here in terms of police reform, policing, I mean, we, we discuss uh, what the election results nationally might mean for police reform and and more broadly local ballot initiatives. And um, he gives us a pretty good rundown of what's what's happening and what this could mean for Los Angeles and Southern California, where where he's really based. You know, we spend a little bit of time or on the Talmudic sources and, and how that informs his his thinking. But we really get into the policies of police reform and, and why he thinks uh, and many think police uh, Police modeling isn't working, and what 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 needs to change? Uh, we get at some of his ideas about what a working model could be, and we we also talk about some of his personal experience. Um, you know, not as a police officer, but as a soldier in the in the Israeli army, and and how that's impacted his understanding of 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 guns, of violence he certainly brings a, a strong perspective to this topic. So it was a, it was, it felt like a really interesting conversation. Let's uh, let's get to it. Rabbi Arya Cohen. Rabbi Cohen is serious scholar, professor of rabbinic studies at the American Jewish university in Los Angeles. He's also a senior research fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America and rabbi in residence at Ben the Ark Jewish accent, Southern California, with means means he's he's a committed, experienced activist. His latest book is Justice in the City, an argument from the sources of rabbinic Judaism. And a fellow podcaster, Cohen has a weekly Talmud podcast called Daf Shivui Weekly Daf. He says, give me 40 minutes or so, and I'll give you a Daf or so. So we recommend to... <laughs> to check it out and delve into the Talmud with Rabbi Cohen as your learned and accessible guide. 
with that in mind, let's 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 get to it. So much to discuss. Um, Rabbi Cohen, welcome to the show. It's uh, it's it's great to have you here at, at this at this time. Thank you. It's really great to be here. So before before I start at the beginning, um, I figured I'd start at the, at the present. Um, we're talking Friday after after Election Day, where where it looks like. Vice President Joe Biden will will carry the Electoral College. Um, it seems like on on the one hand, um, you know, before we're going to get into the topic of of police reform and 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 um, and the defund the police movement. I mean, it seems like nationally, it would be hard to take the election results as as sort of a ringing endorsement for for systematic reform in those policies. But but as we've seen, there there have been a bunch of um, a bunch of ballot measures passed in 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 half a dozen cities and, and states around around the country. I, I think more than that. Um, certainly, a couple of key things in in your your home city of Los Angeles. So, we'll talk about as an advocate. Um, how do you come away from election day feeling in in terms of um, in terms of police reform, knowing that we still don't know the final final results. Yeah, uh, thanks for that. Um, there's really mixed results all around the country. I mean, Florida, which went for for Trump again with a larger uh, chunk of the Latino vote, which is you know maybe, maybe basically a Cubano vote and some Venezuelan, but uh, they also passed a higher minimum wage and they also legalized marijuana. Um, so, though legalizing marijuana could have been on nonpartisan basis. Uh, in in California, I think that you know California, a, a number of conflicting trends on the progressive side in general. But in terms of police reform, in terms of uh, you know carceral reform or uh, moving towards abolition and pushing back mass incarceration, there have been some. There were there is a solid trend, and there's also really interesting things happening in terms of the political process. The uh, not the the electoral process, but but wider than that, politics in its largest sense. And in in Los Angeles, one of the biggest wins is that uh, Jackie Lacey, who's been the DA, this was going to be her third term, was voted out of office by George Gascon, who is often called the father of the progressive uh, district attorney movement. Um, he was vo- he was uh, supported uh, a year ago. Nobody knew he existed. He was supported by a totally grassroots movement. Um, and part of that, a major part of that, uh, is was Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter has been demonstrating outside of Jackie Lacey's office for over three years now. And at first, what they wanted, their demand was um, that Jackie Lacey charge police officers in officer-involved shootings. She's never charged a police officer until very recently. And after she refused that and refused to meet with, with Black Lives Matter, they changed their demand to Jackie Lacey must go. And Jackie Lacey went. And they are not a player. What's fascinating about it is that it wasn't vote for George Gascon. I mean, even though that's the logical result, we know that if there are two people on the ballot and you say Jackie Lacey must go, and yes, we want you to vote, you're going to vote for George Gascon. But they refused to do what the political consultant what veteran politicians would say they had to do. You have to get involved in the system. You have to run a candidate. You have to support a party. They didn't do any of that. They created a mass movement, probably the large, you know, there are those who say that Black Lives Matter is the largest mass movement for social justice in the history of the country, if not larger. 
And uh, that's what they did. They created every week. They, they created a movement out of grief and anger. So they met on Wednesday afternoon. And as you can imagine, it was celebratory, but it was still the center of their gatherings every Wednesday is a combination of politics and a shiva. It's, you know, they, it's the families of those who have been killed by the police who speak and they say, and they're given space to say whatever they want. They're not given talking points. They don't speak off a, a pre, you know, they don't, it's not a rehearsed. It's just grief. It's like hearing somebody speak at a shiva. It's powerful. I've been going there off and on for three years. And it used to be 35, 40 people standing on the steps of, of the hall of justice, or as they call it, the hall of injustice. And now it has to, now it's in the street because it's hundreds of people. And they built this movement. Um, and that movement brought in its way uh, a, a progressive DA being elected, um, seemingly very convincingly. It also brought in its way the whole, uh, a political, you know, a legislative side to defunding the police. The uh, county measure was passed called Measure J, which sets aside 10% of the city budget, which cannot be, there's no leakage. It's it's siloed. And that money is for what we would broadly call social services, um, employment, uh, drug rehabilitation, social, social workers. And that money cannot go to the sheriff's department. And so it's moving the, the whole claim, the whole demand of defund the police was to take that amazingly large chunk of money, which is some, around 50%, maybe more, and move it, take it away from the police department and move it into the communities that are impacted to fund things like education and um, small businesses and social services. So, so lots, lots to get into there. Um, and now I think I want to, I want to just take a step back and, and um, frame the conversation, your, your essay for, for Evolve and your book, Justice in the City. I think one of the, the central premises is that we as a society, as, as Jews, can look to the Talmud and other Jewish sources to inform current policy debates about policing and, and other matters. So I guess I wanted to get your, your perspective on that. Who is this, who is this for? Is this, is this so Jews can better understand these, these um, debates in, in, in terms that resonate with our tradition? Is it that we think the Talmud and its ancient wisdom has, has something to offer the larger, the larger society that we can, that scholars can, can interpret? Like what's the purpose of, of consulting the Talmud to, to better understand police reform and other pressing policy debates? Great question. Um, so there are, bunch of different reasons that I that I look to the Talmud. One is that that's where I live. I, I love Talmud. I teach Talmud. I, you know, so there's a conceptual world that rises when I think about different issues. Um, if the question, there, there are a number of different ways to understand the question. If the question is, um, does Talmud, you know, studying the textual tradition, is there a better, is, is that the only way to come to arrive at just solutions to problems? Obviously not. That's a ridiculous thing to say. But so I would say a number of things. In certain instances, the Talmud has some insights into current debates, which uh, our contemporary uh, culture does not 
get at because the Talmud starts from different points. Not only is it a different, it's not a capitalist society. It's not a socialist society. It's an agrarian society, which is kind of mixed in terms of what the economy was. It's also a society, imperial society, but, um, but at the same time, what's more important is that it's a society that's based on obligation more than rights. Mm. And how does that change things? So I'd say that in a number of ways, uh, not so much around policing. Policing is its own, is its own thing. And, and it talks about policing and about incarceration. We'll get there in a minute. But for example, around uh, homelessness or around poverty relief, the Talmud talks in terms of what the obligation of a city is to those who are impoverished. Um, our society talks in terms of, of rights. Now, mm-hmm. what right does a, does a poor person have? Um, is there a right to shelter? Now, some people will make the claim that these are two sides of the same coin. And I would, I would strongly disagree with that. And uh, here with the following example, if I'm homeless, and I have a right to shelter, there has to be somebody from whom I can derive that right. But if we start from the point of the right, it's not clear who has to give me shelter. So I have to sue the city, I have to sue the state, I have to sue the federal government to find out who is it who's gonna fulfill that right. If on the other hand, we talk from the point of view of obligation, the city has an obligation to make sure that everybody has shelter, then as soon as a person comes and says, I don't have shelter, this, we know who has to supply the shelter. Same thing with, with poverty relief, the same thing with, with all kinds of other things. So the, the, a, 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 a system which is based on obligation, it's much clearer what the relationship between the marginalized and the society in general is. And I think that that's helpful in enlightening these conversations. Of course, our it's not going to our system isn't going to change into a into an obligation based system rather than a rights based system because of centuries of law and practice. But the discourse clarifies what's going on to a large to a large degree. You um, you spend a lot of time in the Evolve essay talking about the the Talmudic concept of uh, a shotrim and. I'm no great Talmud scholar, but I'd, I'd never heard the term before this essay. So what is it? Why is it important for the debate we're having now? So uh, it's interesting because it's, because it's unimportant, <laughs> in a sense, <laughs> right? So Shoter right. is, <laughs> is both the modern Hebrew word for policeman, um, and it's also, uh, it's also a biblical word, right? And so... People, sometimes people will make the mistaken assumption. This is kind of in your original question. Oh, look, the Bible says Shater. That must be talking about our police force. Now, hmm. what's interesting is the way that the halachic tradition has understood the concept of a Shoter, which is why oftentimes in the, in the essay, I don't translate it because it's not simply policemen. It's, it seems to be, um, as the halachic literature evolves, a person who carries out certain types of rulings of the court, right? And now the interesting thing is that um, Maimonides, when Maimonides codifies this, he says very little about these shotrim. He says the Maimonides code has pages and pages, chapters and chapters about the court system, 
but he has two places where he talks a little bit about uh, the Shotrim, these, these police, let's call them police officers. So what do we do with that? So the contemporary legal, the contemporary halachic tradition doesn't say a lot about it, but those who do, especially Chaim David Alevi, and he's the person who I quote most extensively in the article, has a fascinating take on it. And he says that, that the shoter is not just a police officer. The shoter is kind of a roving court. So the, the shoter is somebody who has to have a, a really deep understanding of the law because he is the front line of carrying out the law and making legal interpretation. This, you know, for me, this is like a light bulb that went off. It was obviously everybody says, well, the, the police are the enforcement arm of the law. But they're more than that. They're an, a, they're a, an interpretive arm. They are a moral and legal, and legal interpretive arm of the law. And so every interaction has to be based on, on, a, on a, a, an understanding of, of justice and an understanding of law. And that is obviously not happening. The second thing is that we come here to a situation where obviously Jewish law has no traditional categories to understand contemporary police to policing. And that's because contemporary policing is contemporary. It's only in the past number of centuries that we had police officers who were supposed to solve crimes. You see, this is what was fascinating to me. And, and I don't know if I'd ever thought about it this way, but you point out that, you know, until, until a couple centuries ago, and certainly in the time of the Talmud, most of what we consider crime is really in the area of torts, a person versus a person, and it was sort of a matter of interpersonal adjudication, how theft of a sheep or an ox or, or something would be resolved. And you point to it as a revolution that the state gets involved and, and in effect takes over adjudication punishment of, of a crime. And I guess what I was curious about was, were you pointing that out as a, as a critique? Were you saying we, we went down the wrong road as, as a global society by, by getting the state in the crime and punishment business? And did that somehow lead us to where we are with um, mass in, incarceration and, and, and you know, the, the injustices we're seeing? Or, or, or was, that, was that just more of a, a fact you were pointing out? It, was, it, wasn't, a, it wasn't a critique. Um, I'm not sure. I think we got to a place that, so what, what happened was is that the king got involved. So all crimes became crimes against the king. And that's how we got police officers, right? That's how we got, that's how we started the contemporary notion of a police force is supposed to solve crimes because the crimes against the king and they weren't crimes just against subjects. But it's not a, it's not necessarily a critique of that. I mean, I think because I, I you know, we don't live in, 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 a, in an agrarian society. We don't live in, I don't know what would happen if we live in a society where we actually sued each other for damages rather than have, a police force come in. But what I do know, what, what I did, what is important about that is the shift enabled the creation of a police force, which was supposed to solve crimes as opposed to like we have, there are some countries where it's different. Like for example, in Spain, it's the prosecutor who is also the investigative arm, right? Hmm. They're all, you know, as opposed to the United States where investigation and prosecution are two different things. Investigation is supposed to be neutral. And, um, but uh, so, what does happen is that we, we are able to get to the point where, a, a, where the there's a choice about what crimes are investigated 
where resources are put, what is considered a crime that's important or not. The police department decides how to direct its resources. And what we have is a situation nowadays over many years where uh, there are certain neighborhoods, there are certain communities that are over-policed and under-protected and other communities where you barely see police, but if there's a crime, it's solved like that. At Wednesday, I was thinking about this when I was at the, the BLM gathering on Wednesday afternoon, one of the women whose uh, brother had been shot by the police, which she was, and, and her rage bubbled over and she said, where are you when they break into our houses? Where are you when people, when, where are you when there's theft? You're nowhere, right? And so that's part of this issue of what, what crimes do you solve? There's, there's cops all over South LA and all over East LA, but they're not solving crimes. And they're, the, you know, it's, they're, they're not stopping murders. Murder, you know, crime has gone down, but they're not solving crimes. So there is the, the question of <coughs> the forensic investigatory apparatus of the system is not being placed at the service of those communities who really need it. At the same time, what they're doing is they're acting as, you know, to put it in a very crass way, as an occupying force, which goes back, which is actually rooted in the history of policing in the United States, where policing in the United States started in slave patrols. Oh. And in Los Angeles, it was both slave patrols and also patrols to round up Native Americans um, to sell them to farmers as cheap labor. Well, you know, a lot of times in the Jewish community, uh, I was on a you know, webinar with a bunch of people about uh, defunding the police, and uh, a, a rabbi of a very well-established um, uh, reform temple in a, in, a, in a wealthy neighborhood said, you know, I'm very, we're very happy that we're in a 90-second response zone. Meaning if there's an incident at the synagogue, there'll be police presence in 90 seconds. So we have to ask the question, who's being protected and who isn't being protected? Time out here. We hope you're finding this a powerful interview. Do you want others to experience this kind of conversation? Please take a moment to give us a five-star rating or leave a review. Positive ratings and reviews really help other people find out about this show. All right, now back to Rabbi Arya Cohen. So you you argue that, or, or you state that the evidence strongly shows that that policing doesn't work. And 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 certainly looking, looking, looking at some of the some of the horrific incidents we've we've seen this summer, it's hard to argue it, it, it does, but doesn't work to me. Doesn't sound very scientific. Like doesn't work compared to compared to what? Like do we control and have no police and you know compare what society looks with no police? Like how do you how do you understand doesn't work? How do we measure that so we could, I guess, think about what what could work? Okay, so. Um... So there's a, an, an article from the Washington Post from January 2019 about homicide. Um, and this, you know, where, and if anything, if you look at any, if we, if anybody and, any, and all of us watch the, you know, the police shows on TV, the procedurals. So it's always, <laughs> they always figure it out. <laughs> it's always a homicide. F 50 minutes later, it's figured out and somebody's, somebody's caught. Doesn't make a difference what, but um, using public records requests, the Washington Post, detailed information about up to a decade of homicides. What they, and, 
they mapped nearly 55,000 homicides in major American cities. And this is what they say over the past decade. They found that across the country, there are areas where murder is common, but arrests are rare. Homicide arrest rates vary widely when examined by the race of the victim. An arrest was made in 63% of the killings of white victims, compared with 48% of killings of Latino victims and 46% of the killings of black victims. Almost all of the low arrest zones are home primarily to low income black residents. So that's, you know, when you take that as a whole, that that's, there's, that's what we call systemic, a systemic problem, systemic racism that there, you know, and so um, it's, and, and there, the question of, of what crimes are solved and where. So the problem where they had in New York, uh, the issue of, of stop and frisk, um, where when they stopped stop and frisk, crime went down, right? Now that, you know, there's always questions of causality, but they didn't, when they, when they used stop and frisk, crime didn't go down. So the whole purpose of stop and frisk didn't work. And, and so what happens when every, it's that the people who are being stopped and frisked, the black and Latino men who are being stopped and frisked aren't idiots. They know that they're the ones that are being stopped and frisked and not white people the same age as them. So the relationship with the, with the police force is a relationship towards an occupying force. And it's not that they don't wanna be protected, you know, there's a, a wonderful, a, a wonderful though really disturbing book called Ghetto Side, Ghetto um, Ghetto Side, by Julie Ovi, who's a, a, an L, was an LA Times reporter, years of deep reporting in Los Angeles, and the point of the book is that solving murders doesn't is doesn't rise to the top of the priorities of the police department because it takes a long time and a lot of resources. And you can get the same kind, you can get better headlines and better splash if you go after just, you know, street dealers, or if you go after, you know, you do things like um, broken taillights, broken taillights, stop signs, so, and, and then try to get somebody on an, on an old warrant or whatever. Now, what happens is, aside from the fact that this causes a, a, a relationship with a police force, which is tense and violent, but if we think about what the functions of a police force should be, um, and then what they are, what they are actually carrying out, we realize that most of the things that cops are doing are not things that you need cops for, right? When you have a traffic accident, you have two policemen showed up armed. Why? Right? Two cars smashed into each other. Maybe somebody's pissed off. Cops should be trained in how to de-escalate a situation without shooting anybody. Yeah, so let's let's get into it. Let's um let's talk about what you either what you envision or 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 what advocates you work with envision when we when we talk about defund the police. I think I think even you know these many months after the the terms come into widespread use, I think there's still a lot of confusion and 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 some apprehension over it. Right, I, I totally agree. Let's talk a little bit about, I think it's important to get, get into the details. What do cops do, right? So let's, let's, I think we could agree on the following things that don't need armed officers. Writing traffic tickets, um, going to traffic accidents, um, uh, doing uh, wellness calls at people's houses, doing foot patrols. Now foot patrols, some people might say, well, maybe there'll be, maybe there will be violence in the foot patrol. So 
the, the what is the purpose of doing a, of, of, of police on patrol is to make sure that things are okay, that everybody is safe. And so if let's say, and people will disagree with me even on this, let's say there are situations and there will be situations, hard situations where force is called for. That shouldn't be the first line. There should be a core, a small core of people who are armed and trained in that to be able to do that. But here's the thing. If you have somebody who has a mental breakdown in a shopping mall, something that happened here very recently, and they have a knife. If you have two armed police officers, their training tells them that any danger to them or possible danger to them, they pull their, they pull their guns and they shoot. If they didn't have guns, they would need to be trained like police officers in London are, that there are other ways to deescalate a situation aside from killing somebody. And the person with a knife, yes, is might be a danger, might, might not be a danger in that moment. But in the long run, the real problem is access to mental health. What we want in that situation, what everybody wants in that situation is for this person to go to a hospital, to get mental health, um, uh, you know, to get mental health care. Um, whereas currently, and this is what defund the police is all about. Whereas currently the best way to get mental health is to get arrested. The largest mental health facilities are prisons. That's insane, especially since prisons cause trauma. You can't cure somebody of the trauma that leads them to be violent in a place which causes trauma. So there we have the situation exactly where, where we're going exactly the wrong way. Right? Now, even if you take situations of domestic violence, which can often be, be, be problematic, if you send in armed police, there's a good chance that somebody's going to get killed. If you send in unarmed police, but have the guys with the guns downstairs around the block in case, then the, the cop knocking on the door is going to be trained in ways of talking down the violent, usually man, with the knife, saying, trying to get him out that door where everybody is safe and then, then dealing with him. So it's not that arms are never called for, but we also have to remember, we can't forget this. And this drives me crazy that people talk about this in a vacuum also. There are 300 million arms in private hands. Right, There's I was gonna say in million- London, right, in, in, in England, the police officers don't, don't have the same fear that there are all those guns out in society. I mean, it's, it could be a chicken right, so and egg debate a little. It could be, but instead of getting into that vicious cycle, of, well, everybody has an AR-15. So first of all, not everybody has an AR-15, right? It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a smaller and smaller group of people have more and more weapons. But besides that, we have to attack both of these problems. Both of these things are problematic, right? So we can't say, oh, well, you, know, you can't take away the police's guns because private people have guns. Oh, well, you can't take away private people's guns because they have to arm themselves against the police, right? That's an insane, that that's, gets us where, where, where we get to, where, where people go into, you know, into, into uh, fast food restaurants with, with AR-15s because they're worried that they're going to be attacked by a, a you know, a, a Big Mac. Um, but there, so in the current situation, there will be, for the foreseeable future, need for a small group of people who are well-armed. But those people should only be able to, and this is where I, I got this idea from the notion of triage in hospitals, right? Two people come into the hospital, the doctor has to make, and the, the doctor is, is just getting, you know, is fatigued from making these decisions. There has to be a group of people. And these are, so these are situations that have to be made on the spot because you have two people who are you giving the ventilator to? 
Those are the type of situations, those are the type of decisions which should be made by the same type of an ethics committee when in the very small minority of situations, there's a call for using deadly, deadly force. Nobody should shoot a gun without getting, without that running through the, the, um, that, that kind of an ethics committee. In the small, in the small, very small. Now, the other thing that happens is just recently, the sheriff's department shot a guy um, uh, who was riding his bicycle the wrong way on the street. That was, the, that was what initiated the interaction. And then he refused to stop. What did he do? He was riding his bicycle. Right? And so the reason that these things escalate to that point is because the sheriffs have guns, because the police have guns. If you put people into situations, and there are numerous situations, mental health situations, um, uh, you know, quality of life situations, uh, all these kind of things, where once you introduce a gun into the interaction, somebody's going to get killed. Because there are other ways, you know, I, I'm a very prominent, I'm a very, I don't know, prominent, I'm a very uh, uh, fierce advocate of nonviolence. And I know that there are ways to stand up against violent counter protesters or against the police where nobody gets hurt. The police should know that also. The police should know that also. And I think that that's our basic problem. When we say defund the police, we're saying, look at the number of people that have been killed by police. A lot of those people, a majority of those people had were either mental health issues or in a situation which escalated because of the police. A lot of the violence over the summer in Los Angeles was initiated because instead of letting a group march down this street, the police decided, no, they have to march down this other street. And so they initiated violence. They stopped, they pushed people back. All these things are connected. And I think that actually the larger point, which I don't know if maybe I'm overstepping my bounds here. The larger point is we live in a society where force is the answer. If you look at our foreign policy, the Defense Department takes a majority of the of the of the national budget, and the defense the army is building houses and building roads and everything. Any problem, we send the army to do it, which is insane. It's because we trust the gun. Okay, well, we have another couple seconds of your time. If you'd like to support these groundbreaking conversations on the podcast, on the website. In Evolves Web Conversations, you can support us. You can make a contribution at reconstructingjudaism.org slash evolve dash donate. There's also a donate link in our show notes. Thank you so much for listening. And now, with no further ado, Rabbi Arya Cohen. So speaking of the gun, I mean, since since October 27th, um, 2018, um, a great many more synagogues and Jewish institutions have turned to armed guards. I mean, one, one could argue pretty, pretty reasonably based, you know, based on the potential threat. Um, you know, we're also in society still, still concerned about mass shooters and, and, you know, and, and, and terrorism. So how, you know, what do you say to people who are concerned, you know, who's going to protect my synagogue, who's going to protect us against, you know, potential terror attacks if if we you know dearm the police and and take away some of their resources totally uh, great question um, don't necessarily have a great answer to it so most of the according to the studies when you have a mass shooting most of the people who get killed get killed in the first 90 seconds and then either the gunman runs away 
The gunman shoots themselves. Um, somebody shoots the gunman. In most cases, the job of a security guard is to be the first person killed in those situations because security guards are outgunned. And, and the question is, what is the cost benefit? You know, it would be wonderful if we could be a risk-free society and, and nobody ever gets killed. But what brought the shooter to the Eitz Chaim Synagogue in, in Pittsburgh? What brought, him he, what brought him there was a rhetoric of racist, xenophobic violence. And that's what he wrote. He, he, he attacked them because they were a highest shul. They were bringing immigrants and then they fit into his, this anti-Semitic mythology that Jews are bringing in you know, brown people to replace white people. That's what brought him specifically to that synagogue. Now, if there had been somebody, if there had been an armed guard there, would the armed guard have been able to shoot him first before he was shot? I don't know. We, none of us know. The same way in Poe, the synagogue here in, in uh, San Diego, uh, where there was a, an armed shooter. But there also in Poe, the rabbi who wasn't armed chased the guy away. Not the rabbi, another congregant chased the, the shooter out. Without In, in, in Christchurch in New Zealand, where there was that awful uh, massacre in a, in a mosque, what finally chased the gunman away was somebody picked up the credit card machine and threw it at the guy's head. And so nobody, it wasn't armed guards. So the question is, what, are we, what is the cost benefit of having armed guards in these situations as opposed to other kinds of security? After, I was, I, for a while I was working on this, this project to try to convince shuls not to become armed fortresses. And I spoke to one, one rabbi and they spoke to this, this rabbi spoke to a former secret service agent who was a member of their congregation the Secret Service agent said, um, do you want me to do a security audit of the congregation? And the rabbi kind of hesitantly said yes, worrying that, you know, the Secret Service agent would come back and say, well, you have to put a tank in the lobby and have a machine gun nest next to the rabbi's seat on the pulpit. But rather than that, the Secret Service agent said, what you need is to have ushers who know where the doors are who know where the exits are and who can tell people where to go in the case of, in the case of, of, of an incident. And there are a lot of things we could do because if you, if you have, and this happens to be a synagogue, which is not, doesn't look like an armed fortress. It has armed guards, but they're in civilian clothes, not many of them. Well, in those synagogues that have electronically controlled gates and fences and security guards in camo and carrying uh, you know, weapons on their hips, there are kids who are walking into that synagogue. I'm not saying that adults don't learn this lesson the same way, but kids who are going to the day school, kids who are going to services on, on Saturday, we're teaching, that's a teaching moment. We're teaching those kids that the outside world is scary and the only security is inside this building. What that teaches them is that, no, we shouldn't try to make, uh, you know, come together with other communities in order that we each, we each guarantee each other's safety. We shouldn't look outside of, of our synagogue and try to draw other people in or make, uh, uh, you know, come together in various different types of partnerships with other people. What we have to do is be inside our synagogue behind walls. In a, a security briefing, which was put on by the Federation in Los Angeles, the security, the, the guy who, who was the head of security talked about hardening targets. And he explained it in the following way. He said, to harden your target means you want a gunman 
to not go into your synagogue, but to go into the synagogue down the block because your synagogue is harder. And I was thinking, I don't want a gunman to go into any synagogue. To say that we are not responsible for every community in the city is saying that we are not, that we are not being responsible Jews. Right? We, are not, we, we want to create a city. We have to look at the root causes of issues to create a city where no synagogue has to be a fortress. And that's a whole bunch of issues. You can't start at, at the shooting and say, this would have worked out better because none of us know. You have, to, you have to zoom out and say, what brought to this shooting? What brought us to this shooting? If you, re, if you respond, when you're on the street, you're in an action, um, what everybody tells you is if something happens, the first thing you have to do is breathe. Because if you react from that initial surge of energy, your heart is beating faster, your fight, your fight or flight uh, reflex is gone, you're going to make the wrong decision. Thinking fast and slow, right? Exactly. And so we have to, at that moment, we have to grieve. We have to grieve. But then when we pull out the, the focus, we have to say, what brought us to this moment really? Right? And, and we have to address those issues. And those issues are not addressed by more guns and more guards. Those issues are addressed by social problems, by getting rid of guns in private hands, by not having a president who, who, who legitimates um, xenophobic and racist and, and you know, pseudo-fascist or near-fascist mythologies of this country. Wow. So much to, to, to think about and digest. In the, I know we're running out of, of time, and, and I wanted to make sure um, I asked this. Um, in, in your personal biography, I mean, you, you served in the, in the Israeli Defense Forces um, a, number of, a number of years ago. You, you were in the first uh, Lebanon War in, 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 the, in the early 80s. Um, presumably, you, you had to fire... Uh, fire a weapon in, in um, you know, in combat. How has that experience shaped your, your approach to, or your thinking on policing and, and, and firearms? Because it seems, it, it, it feels like it must. Yeah, once upon a time when, uh, yes, I, this is all true what you're saying. And there was a time in the debate around gun control uh, uh, back in uh, Sandy, you know, when, after Sandy Hook, when, uh, the pro-gun folks, I don't know why anybody would want to identify themselves as pro-gun, but the pro-gun folks would say, um, oh, what do you know about guns? And so I wrote a blog post in which in the middle saying, you know, even though I think this is completely irrelevant to the situation at hand, I fired weapons from a nine millimeter Beretta to a, to a, you know, a tank cannon. Um, I was intimately familiar with guns. The truth is, you know, if you're just shooting a, a gun, it's fun. It's like target shooting. But to have a gun define you is a whole other thing. And, and to, to, to ignore the context of armaments. Totally. So the, 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 the 82 war in Lebanon actually was very important in my own biography, in my understanding. When I got down from Lebanon, in which many of my friends were killed in that war. I'm sorry. And many of my friends had to kill in that war. Um, my initial reaction, which at first I thought was just, I can't believe this is, you know, this is how superficial this is, how shallow this is. But I said, my initial reaction really was, I can't believe 
people have been doing this for thousands of years and still think this is the way to solve problems, right? Um, but the truth is that after, you know, now 40 years later, almost, I think that's the right reaction. It can't be because even if you look at that war, nothing was solved. Nothing was solved. Hundreds of people were killed. Right? Hundreds of people were killed. And, you know, millions of dollars were poured into that and nothing was solved. Things are not solved by war. One of my favorite um, philosophers is Immanuel Levinas, who in his philosophical way says the ontology of war and the ontology of peace are completely different. What he means by that is that war does not lead to peace. Pax Romano is not a peace. It was violent suppression of any opposition, which when that violent suppression weakened at all, there would be another war. In the 20th century, World War I led inexorably to World War II, right? The way to get to peace is not through war. It's by denying war. And this is what I learned personally, and this was what I, my takeaway from the Lebanon War was. And that was the beginning of a very long journey away from certain type of, of right-wing politics, um, uh, my ability to, to examine kind of long-held truisms about guns and, and, and violence and the army and, and the role of the army and um, purity of arms, other kinds of, uh, of notions. And that ability to stand back and actually rethink things has been uh, an important tool in the rest of my life. And that's where I got, to, I mean, I was always liberal on other things aside from, from Israel growing up. Um, but the ability to say, you know what? 10 years ago, I would have thought that, no, we need a police force. We need this police force. We need a, we need a, a, a carceral system. We need to put lock people, lock people up. To where, I, to where I'm willing to say, wait a second, is that a fact or is that a truism? Because I'm just thinking of the, the you know, the, the, um, the kind of apocalyptic situation where, okay, let's just open up the prisons and let everybody out and they're all going to kill each other. Rather than saying, we have so much money in this system, a system of set where there's 70% recidivism. So a system that's failed, if 70% of cars failed, we wouldn't buy cars. So it's a, a, it's a system that's, that is obviously failing and so much money is put in it. And there are other ways to do this that we have to, that it is, it behooves us if we really want to create a more perfect union to rethink these things. If we really want to create the kingdom, you know, the kingdom of God on earth, if we want to create an, an, a you know, place of, of justice it behooves us to say that no, we that there are no more sacred cows that we can't um, slaughter or that we can't question um, their premises. Rabbi Arya Cohen, this is such a fascinating conversation. I feel like so so much to discuss, but that that seems like a a, a hopeful place to to end, and 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 I'm all for for hope these days. Um, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show, and I, I hope. Um, I hope we have the chance to to do this again and and, and hopefully we'll um, you know some progress will have been made by, by the next time we 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 interact. As my grandmother would say, from your lips to God's ears. Thank you and and Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks so much for listening to the conversation with Rabbi Arya Cohen about his essay, What Happens When Everything Is Broken, Grappling with Defund the Police. So what did you think of today's episode? I want to hear from you. Evolve is about two-way conversations, and that includes you. 
Send us your questions, comments, feedback. You can reach me directly at B Schwartzman, S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z-M-A-N, at reconstructingjudaism.org. We'll be back next month with a brand new episode. Evolve, Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations, is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub and edited by Sam Walks. Our theme song, Ilufinu, was written by Rabbi Miriam Margols. This show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and I will see you next time.